Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast Investorpreneur, where investors meet entrepreneur. Here we talk about everything investing, business, raising capital, and today I have a very special guest in the house. Speaking to us about his firm's latest $14 million Series A raise and a big name now in the insure tech world. As you, my name is Peter Leung, and I'm a global real estate investor. I own, invest, and develop properties around the world. You've seen me on videos on the stage working with serial entrepreneurs, investors on deploying capital and making returns for their family offices as well. I'm also a private equity business and angel investor as well. I'm also very excited to speak with the man of the helm of this business that everybody is talking about in the insurance industry. John Briscoe is the CEO and founder of Coherent Helps Insurance Companies invent and be able to produce and bring product to market in a more timely fashion. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Delighted to be here today. It is so awesome to be here and to be at your, your event last week, having celebrating your Series A close. Congratulations on that, first and foremost. No, thank you very much. Obviously, uh, it's a really exciting time for us as a business, a uh, really exciting time for so personally, family and everyone and friends associated on the journey so far. Uh, yeah, absolutely delighted to be able to share that experience. Uh, and then obviously the kind of the kudos as well as the appreciation, which has came from many of our clients and the industry as a whole. So yeah, it's been a very exciting week. And sometimes you kind of pinch yourself about some of those moments, uh, but then you've kind of got to bring yourself back to reality. You've kind of got, uh, still got business to kind of grow and expand really, really quickly. But needless to say, uh, uh, delighted obviously on, on the significant milestone. That is, that is incredible. And you're extremely humble too. John, you've done this in, in such a short period of time, right? Under in three years, you've been able to go from um, seed to angel to closing out Series A in a matter of under three years. And your Series A, of course, you've got some significant investors like uh, Franklin Templeton as well. So from that standpoint, how did you start and how did you lay the foundations for your success? Yeah, so I think a little bit about my personal journey and, and where before kind of Cape Creighton to here. And I, I've been lucky enough to kind of spend the majority of my career in the insurance industry with some really major, amazing insurance companies like Manulife, like AXA, like QBE, where, where I got to travel the globe and work in very senior roles. Prior to kind of, uh, kind of creating Coherent, I was the CIO and CEO for Manulife across Asia. And I think I, I kind of, my biggest kind of, uh, kind of lesson from those uh, organizations is there's such huge brands, such huge scale, but in reality, it's quite hard for them to kind of run at pace and accelerate their digital ambitions, uh, mainly because of just the, the scale of the operation, but also they are inhibited by some challenges such as legacy technology, regulation, etc. So when I was sitting there, I was always impatient about why can't the insurers do stuff quicker? And then I came to a kind of natural con con uh, conclusion myself as I was sitting in this role that I think the only way to do it is to try and create a business which can collaborate with insurers in order to build them really new sort of technology solutions to help them overcome the challenges they face. So that was the starting hypothesis. And then really, uh, as anything, it's around uh, how do you take that hypothesis and then take it to product and then market and then kind of expansion. So that's been the journey, but uh, yeah, that, that was the kind of the genesis of seeing and understanding that there was problems, knowing that problem really deeply, and then from there start to think about what's the ones we focus on first to then expand the business. Well, that's incredible. There's a few, obviously many of us are wondering, you've had such senior roles at 
some of these major financial institutions, right? These insurance companies. How did you go from that? You've got the vision. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of faith, and also a lot of energy to go, okay, I'm going to now pivot and go into entrepreneurism, right? And to go into a startup, to invent something, what's in your mind. So how did you go, how did you take the inspiration from taking that leap from, you know, corporate and senior executive to all of a sudden to to your own startup? Can you enlighten us how you were able to do that? And how did you gather the support for that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think that if I kind of look back in my 20 years and, and kind of working experience, I've always wanted to kind of push the, the opportunities of what I could do, as well as kind of learn really fast across a number of different roles and, and opportunities, which has enabled me to work in various continents, has obviously enabled me to work in different functions. But from there, uh, I always thought my co- my calling was like, I want to get to C-suite and then basically, then I'll be satisfied. And then I got to C-suite and I really enjoyed and loved the role and loved the kind of company I was working for. But there was this kind of inner ambition and inner passion that I want to kind of create something myself that can actually solve bigger problems. So uh, I think we always hear cliches as are people like born entrepreneurs? I, I don't think I was a born entrepreneur. I think it was more just someone who get, it basically gradually built up on me that I wanted to be solving big problems and solving big opportunities. And therefore, when you realize that's kind of eating away at you every single day, then you've got to do something about it. And uh, I'm sure I'm not the only ex-exec or ex uh, or current people who are currently execs who have that sort of yearning or ambition, but then it's taking the leap. And um, to take that leap is a, is a hell of a big call because ultimately, uh, obviously from a financial point of view, from a kind of status point of view, from a family point of view, you're basically putting a lot in line to, to take that leap. So I fully understand why not many people do it. And it wasn't a kind of decision. I woke up overnight and went, I'm going to do this. It was, it was a really thought considered process over a number of months, meeting a number of people, gauging some perspectives from other entrepreneurs who've been through the journey uh, and then coming to, right, I'm going to make this, this decision and make this leap. And more importantly, uh, having my wife Beth kind of be the biggest supporter of it. Because ultimately, if, if, if your significant other half is probably not supportive, then it's not going to be a success. So basically, she always saw that I had this sort of passion to do something different. And from there, that, that's where I kind of decided to take the leap. That, and you brought up a very good point, John, because it, going from corporate C-suite to entrepreneurism, it takes that you know, tremendous amount of faith in your ability and your team's ability and your vision but it also takes that of, of your family. Of course, you've got Beth is along your side as you formed this venture. So how did you break the news to her? How did this, you go all of a sudden, you're living the life in terms of corporate job. How did you break, how did you break the news to her, letting her know that you now believe that you're going to take a different journey? So I think it's, it's quite interesting. I think I, I, was, I came to the conclusion herself that I was going to do this based on just comments I was making coming home every night. Obviously, Beth realized we were tr- tremendously kind of humble to have the previous role that I did at Manulife, and I'm forever grateful for the company giving me that role. But she was also kind of going, like, I see you whiteboarding stuff in the house and thinking about different things, which don't seem to be really kind of potentially Manulife related. 
so she had probably came to a conclusion before myself that I was going to go down a different path. So therefore, she wasn't that surprised when I actually said uh, I was going to do it. I think it was more the question of, but what's the starting point? And therefore, uh, how do you kind of get something kind of up and running? Because being frank, obviously, uh, you hear my voice, I'm from Scotland, I'm living in Hong Kong. They can, if you do the research, it's very rare that an entrepreneur from a, a different country succeeds in a, in a country. So I think that was her biggest, a non-home country, that was her biggest sort of quandary of, can you actually kind of evolve something in a country which you're not a home citizen of and, and essentially so that was basically what I had to kind of prove to her that I'd done some research to think that it could work but she, along the way she's been tremendously supportive that's amazing that that is incredible and and that support around you and I can I, when I met her at your celebration event I was like she deserves such a round of applause because behind a successful entrepreneur and behind the business there's always the, the people around us that support us, that's, that help us grow in our journey. John, when you first started going raising capital, because you had the vision, you had all this, you're raising the capital. Did you start with friends and family first? Or how did three years is a very short time? And most people never get that far. Never, most people never even start a Series A or, or be able to complete it. So you've done something that very few have. But how did it start from the very beginning in terms of fundraising? Did you start with friends and family and then expand to your colleagues and businesses contacts? Is that how you started your raising capital journey? Yeah, it was a very trusted network of friends. I realized I was making a tremendous sort of jump from what I was doing. I think realized that if he's going to do that jump, he must have a bit of confidence that he's going to figure something out, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, was, was, I've always been forever grateful for, uh, for, for those uh, kind of close friends who have invested in the, the business initially to get it going. And then obviously along the way, as you start to scale and accelerate and realize you're onto something, you then expand that to other sort of business connections and business contacts who, who you've met through kind of obviously a variety of different uh, sources uh, over your time in different places. But yeah, I think for the first kind of 18 odd months, we kind of uh, basically leveraged that initial seed investment. The good thing is we've always been a revenue generating from day one. We, we kind of always had that as a philosophy of we've got to try and make sure that we just don't rely on external money all the time. Let's try and kind of get into a habit of driving revenue where we can so that the money doesn't burn too quickly. But yeah, obviously that was the initial play to give us the ability for me to be able to bring on some people and uh, then obviously kind of grow the business from there. That's very different from a lot of businesses today, especially the ones that are IPOing, the ones that are growing. A lot of them are not focused on the revenue or the net profit component. And as, as far as I'm aware of you, you shared with me recently that you've been able to break even already in a, such an early period of time. How is your thinking behind that in terms of still continuing to doing your research, your development, your expansion? How are you putting that all in perspective at this point? Yeah, so I think really it's about knowing the problems that you're going after to solve. So I think about I look outside in, maybe some other sort of technology businesses. I think they spend a lot of money trying to develop things and develop new ideas and sometimes aren't really crystal clear on the problem they're trying to solve. And therefore, you don't you burn significant capital trying to hope that you're you're finding a problem along the way. So we've always kind of gone our R and D 
we really start to spend once we believe we credentialize that a problem exists and somebody's worth paying for it. And the, the best sort of mechanism for that is working with a, a clients like insurers and going, we think we have a solution to this problem. Are you willing to work with us uh, in a paid manner to solve it? Because then it's a problem worth solving, right? Because if, if your clients aren't willing to pay for it, it's not really that big a, a, a problem. Uh, so therefore we, we have focused on what are problems which obviously we think are big enough that can provide amazing sort of growth opportunities for our business, but actually provide tangible benefits to the clients we work for, which are obviously mostly insurers, because that's where it comes from. And that's where I think the revenue and then the profitability comes from, because you're kind of, everyone's winning across that chain. So that's always been the, the kind of the thesis for the business, uh, focus on problems which actually are worth solving. Uh, that's very good because that you've been able to just pinpoint exactly it. If you can solve the problem and they're willing to pay for it, then you know it's a big enough problem to solve. That That's a very good point there, John. So Coherent with this flagship product factory really is focused on enhancing that return for insurance companies to bring that better and faster product to market. So how do you demonstrate that? How do you demonstrate these businesses like AIA, Manulife, FWD, all these different companies around the world, they have had many years of decades of history of being in the insurance field. So how is it that you can explain to them or how is it that you're addressing this uh, value proposition to them? Yeah, no, I think in general, nearly every major insurance, like you mentioned, whether it's AIA, Manulife, et cetera, uh, so many kind of really smart individuals which exist across uh, those organizations. Like they've got obviously fantastic actuaries, fantastic data scientists, engineers, et cetera. But the challenge is because of the way how their organizations are, it means they've got a lot on every single day and every single week and every single year. We, I realize when I'm kind of creating the businesses, they're not naturally technology product or technology platform companies. They don't have enough uh, capacity or, or time to basically focus on continually evolving a technology solution to solve a really big problem. Uh, because obviously they're kind of judged against different statistics and different sort of mechanisms. Uh, the reality is, every single insurer has to face up to analyst briefings every quarter. Yeah. Um, therefore, everything's focused on making sure that initiatives and the business momentum goes. So what we what we want to do with Product Factory is that what we've identified is essentially an external research showcases across a number of different kind of, uh, kind of mechanisms that many insurers do have a, a problem in terms of time to market for new products. They have great ideas, fantastic ideas, across whether it's health products, life products, any type of product. But actually getting that to market takes significant time because of a combination of just the way how maybe the operating model works, meaning it's not really that kind of efficient in terms of how information gets passed across functions. Or what I see is the biggest sort of challenge that many of the insurers' products are built on legacy technology, mm. and mainly mainframe technology. And for those listeners... <laughs> Let's just say that's very outdated technology, which means it's really hard to build at speed and build at pace. So recognizing that was a problem that insurers wanted to get products to market quicker, more innovatively to kind of different customer segments. Could we solve that big paradigm problem around uh, essentially taking away the reliance on the external legacy in order to build products? And that was the kind of genesis behind Product Factory, uh, which in simple terms enables the product teams, i.e. the actuarial teams, 
to load all their models, all their logic, all their rules into Product Factory, and then it turns into running code instantly. So from what took months, now takes minutes or days. And that's what wows the, our insurer clients, seeing that ability to take all their great ideas and then turn it into running code and APIs to then deploy to their front ends. And from there, the, the opportunity for insurers is massive because they've got such scale, such distribution power. If they can essentially create this product factory machine, then, then you can imagine the power that they can have and, and the expansion opportunities. So that's how we've been showcasing the value, solving the big problem, and then seeing it in practice come to life. And, and then obviously that's what gets us the credibility when people see that kind of benefit being achieved. John, are you saying that obviously we're in the midst of, in Hong Kong, we're in the midst of COVID towards the tail end, hopefully with lots of you know news about vaccines and so on and so forth. Are you saying over the course of the last seven, eight, nine months, there hasn't been a lot of product that's been necessarily for COVID, right? Or catering to COVID, so to say. So are you saying that in, in, in essence, that, Product Factory and Coherent is able to provide some of that value in terms of going, hey, instead of it taking products, taking a year to, to come from uh, an idea to execution to, to actuaries doing number crunching and all that, are you saying that you can significantly reduce the time to bring yeah. something to market? And that's the value that you bring significantly? So in reality, I think we all realize now that the world is such a digitally active world and like things like news jacking, when something happens, if you're a business, you want to be reacting to that, right? Uh, otherwise, if you react too late, you, you kind of lose the economic opportunity, which is associated with it. Insurance is no different, right? COVID's obviously been uh, like horrible for the world, but in reality, it probably provides the opportunity for many insurers to offer different types of products, different types of benefits, different types of features in order to kind of really kind of uh, provide a much more differentiated experience for customers going forward. So if you're an insurer, you're looking for a mechanism of how can I get this uh, kind of capability, this product to market quicker in order to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, and that's what Product Factory does. It takes it from multi-months to potentially days. If you use an organization, I've deployed the platform and you've been able to kind of obviously get your internal processes sorted out. And that's where the advantage is. And then the other thing being insurers are always looking for uh, kind of analyzing their product data, their underwriting data, their claims data. So if you need to adjust pricing or rules, then you can do that dynamically. You don't have to then go through another cycle of going through a, a complex product change. It enables them to be much more flexible and nimble. And that's where we see massive advantage for insurers moving forward. A lot of our, our listeners are entrepreneurs, are startups, mature businesses, as well as investors. John, how are you able to get through that red tape? Because you're dealing with big businesses that have their own teams, have their own actuaries, their own calculations, a lot of their proprietary information in terms of how they've been able to do this. How are you breaking the mold of getting these senior executives, just like your, your previous roles, to go, hey, this is what we can offer. And as a matter of fact, not butt heads with their internal teams to go, your competition. Yeah, so I think, I think we, I've always kind of, as mentioned, kind of came with the genesis of the business of, let's focus on solving problems we know are common across multiple insurers. And then uh, essentially proving credibility over the last three years and solving those problems and seeing tangible benefits and outcomes for our clients. Because nothing beats kind uh, of, trust more than basically showing that you, what you say actually happens in practice, right? So 
that's always been a philosophy of the business. So what we've done is, is we've put together a kind of real strong mix of technology as well as actuarial talent to bring that kind of combined skill set to solve some of these problems. And from that, I think insurers feel that because we basically are delivering what we preach, it then enables that collaboration and that trust to be built. And then I think the second thing is that the solutions we offer, it's the data is still managed by the insurers. We're providing the framework, the infrastructure, the engines in order to do all this amazing kind of a kind of new speed, new kind of innovation. But at the end of the day, we don't get to see the data. We don't get to see the product models. That's, that's still the insurer's models moving forward. So in essence, the trust is there because we're providing the capability, but still the DNA of the insurer and their unique products is how they manage that. So that kind of classic software sort of kind of a relationship. So that's where I think that we've been able to have that credibility. And across that, it just then expands the opportunities for us that exists and with those insurers, as well as with obviously other insurers that we deal with. Wow. COVID has been a very big factor to a lot of businesses, right? Obviously, the world has never seen something like this or a very different form of this, of a pandemic. As a matter of fact, how has COVID helped or caused CAVIC for your business? Because the last seven, eight months, we're now, everything's virtual, right? We see much less people, a lot less interaction. How has that affected fundraising? How has that affected business? How has that affected clients? What are some of the learnings that you've had for COVID and how has your business pivoted that way? Yeah, yeah. So I think if we look back to when COVID started originating, maybe late January, February, where it started obviously expanding outside of China, I think across the world, like February and March was a disaster for most businesses. I think everyone was grieving what's going to happen and things along those lines. Then I think from April time, I think, that what we started to see is many insurers realizing this is probably going to have a material impact on how our business operates, how our distribution works, how product needs to work, how we think about risk and underwriting. So they were actually quite kind of advanced and starting to accelerate that they had to start adjusting their business models accordingly. So we'd obviously done a lot of hard work in the last two years, building up a lot of trusted relationships and getting a number of wins and, and credibility. So uh, what we started seeing was an acceleration of digitization of various insurers looking to basically pivot their business models, pivot their technology models in order to take uh, kind of uh, the realization of, of what was going to be coming down the road. So for us, it's been obviously a tremendous sort of growth kind of factor uh, because I think the, the insurance industry has actually been quite at the forefront of realizing that this changes how various things do work. So it's been very good from a business point of view. I think where the, the other impacts come is when you start thinking about delivery. Uh, like anything, we're dealing with uh, some of the world's most renowned organizations. That comes with security requirements. It comes with infrastructure requirements. It comes with detailed sort of configuration and business requirements, et cetera. And then in principle, that we've essentially had to move to mainly our virtual delivery model. Yes. Uh, and I think one of the successes we've had is we kind of pivoted to that model very quickly and basically started hiring people who we felt could be quite good at doing virtual delivery versus on the ground delivery. Uh, but it's meant a lot of adjustment as well for our clients where they're used to having on ground resources where they can basically go and speak to overcome issues. So what we've found is we've had to adjust working hours of our team because obviously 
in order to kind of get the right people uh, kind of sometimes involved. It's you're going to have more evening work as the reality, as well as you probably work at hyper agile way in a, in, a, in a virtual delivery model. So we're continually learning and adjusting a delivery approach uh, in regards to delivery. But I, I think we've adapted quite well, actually, to be honest. And the fact is we're we're deploying currently at this current time across 11 markets right now. And we're doing nearly 98% of it virtually. So I think that's a testament to the model, which we, 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 what we're doing. And then on fundraising, no doubt I had a, a kind of impact in fundraising. I think if you'd asked me in Christmas last year, when I would have liked to have raised, I would have probably have said by April this year would, would have been the ultimate game plan. But obviously got to be respectful of the situation and scenarios as to what was happening. I'm sure every VC was kind of uh, reviewing its portfolio and making sure its portfolio was able to stay, keep on going. So we consciously kind of held off for a few months and then restarted the process in July. Uh, uh, and then obviously it's gone well. So uh, I think timing has worked in our favour in the end. But if you'd asked me honestly last year, I thought I'd have been planning for it earlier. Wow. I mean, that, that's quite a feat and a very big accomplishment. John, you talked about the team, right? And, and the team obviously is very tremendously important for you building your business, like you say, in under three years and profitable. So with that being said, that's incredible. It's not just your work, but you at the helm. How did you build the team around you? How did you attract them to your vision? Because they're working for a new startup. Hong Kong is highly competitive for great talent. How did you express your vision? How did you find these people, bring them on board and put them in the right places? How were you able to do that and attract this type of talent to your business as a startup? Yeah, so I think the, the philosophy has always been try to find people who believe in the potential of insurance, believe that essentially there's problems which can be resolved with smarter solutions as well as smarter collaboration. And then they've got that as key principles. Then actually the discussion of asking them to then join the, the business becomes a lot easier. Because mm. uh, ultimately, if, you, if those two parameters aren't met by an individual, then it's not going to be the right fit because ultimately they're not going to align to the mission and vision of the organization. Uh, so therefore, we, we always had that parameters of identifying people who saw there was opportunity, but maybe had came a little bit, disillusions maybe a strong word, but realizing that, that the industry could be better if there was a if there was a team like us focusing on it. So I was lucky enough to kind of find two really senior guys to begin with, Bob Charles and Peter Roche, Bob's uh, kind of MD of all actuarial uh, kind of uh, team and, and, and uh, incoherent and has had a stellar career across uh, consulting and industry prior to uh, coming to join us. And Peter Roche, who was extremely senior in technology for AXA and other insurers. And I just hit them at the right time when I was leaving where they were exploring options and wanted to kind of maybe think about doing something new. And both of them were realistic to know that it was going to be a journey. It wasn't going to be something overnight that was going to turn into instant success. So that gave us like some really strong pillars to the organization. And then from there, you start, as mentioned, we had that revenue focus start to bring in money along with some of the seed money. And then it's about what's the right staging of hiring that we need. So obviously bringing in additional tech talent, bringing in some additional actuaries, 
I was very conscious that I wanted to bring in some design uh, talent and some marketing talent uh, to the business also. So I was doing it in stages. And then when we kind of realized like we've got some good momentum in Hong Kong, can we start to expand out to other markets? I already had a pretty good network in China through some previous uh, kind of business relationships. So I had someone in mind, Jeff, uh, who basically uh, has been a serial entrepreneur himself and had always said if I ever created something, he'd jump on board. I managed to convince him to come on board. And then I was obviously very keen that we grew our Southeast Asia business. So we created operations in Manila and in Singapore. Uh, Rich, who leads uh, Singapore and other markets in Southeast Asia, was a similar sort of story of mine. Had been in the industry for a while, had a passion to do something else. I basically was able to convince him. And then Aaron was the same in the Philippines, where he's been there for a number of years, uh, basically could see that opportunity existed. And then really given all those individuals the responsibility to build out the teams under them. So that's been the mechanism where attracting people with those sort of key characteristics, that passion, and then giving them the, the platform and the flexibility to, get, to attract talent under them to be able to succeed. And, and so far that model seems to be working quite well. All right, so you've empowered a lot of people different countries. You haven't even seen these people for a little while now, physically. What are some of those empowerment tips? Can you share with us a lot of leadership principles that are critical to a startup going into a growth phase? What type of leadership principles do you abide by in that sense? I think that like it's really interesting. I think in terms of you read lots of books, obviously, about uh, creating culture, creating uh, what's the right mix of what founders should do versus what teams should do, etc. I found some of those books useful, some probably not as useful. But in reality, I think what you find is my job is to make sure there's a coordination of alignment about where we're trying to get to. And, and then also uh, kind of demanding more about the ambition of the business, right? So people say that we can't do that. Then my job is to challenge and go, I think we can. And then obviously always looking for ways of how we can solve problems faster and smarter. So as the founder and leader of the business, that's what's got to be. My role isn't to kind of then tell Rich in Singapore or Jeff in China how to manage their people properly or how to basically talk to clients effectively or how to do some of their kind of pitching about what our propositions are because they've gone through the process of joining the organization. In order for them to feel that they're embedded into the DNA of the company, we've got to make them feel that they're empowered to kind of drive the business. So that's the biggest lesson I would say to anyone who's looking to scale up the business. If you're bringing in smart people who's got experience, who's got credibility, then you've got to give them authority in order to kind of drive the destination that you're going in. And if you do that, you're going to win rewards. Obviously, as a leader, you've got to be across things which are happening and, and be across any kind of key decisions being made. But ultimately, you're never going to scale at the rate we want to scale if everything's on me. It's just not feasible. I think that's the big sort of lesson that we've learned. And then I think that the other thing which might be surprising to you, Peter, and, and people listening in is I've always been conscious not to set our culture from day one. Mm -hmm. uh, you read lots of books saying get your culture right from day one I was probably more anti that of going let's prove product market fit let's prove business model let's prove credibility because your team will believe you more on culture when you've done that versus wow. you could have all really cool things about culture etc but if you've not nailed those other three things most staff are going to be quite cynical of it to be honest 
So we're actually in the phase now of kind of, I think, evolving a culture for coherent moving forward, which I think is because we're at the right stage to do it. Uh, what people have bought into is that we think we've got problems to fix and we, if we've solved those problems, it's tremendous business opportunity for us. But this, now is kind of creating the coherent DNA in a much deeper fashion. And, and I think that's what will act as the kind of catalyst and momentum factor for the business ongoing. Wow, thank you for sharing that. John, in closing, you've shared a lot of great things here about how you've built the business and how you're impacting the insure tech field and how the impact of what you do makes such a tremendous impact on big insurance companies. Share with us where you see the next sort of 12, 18 months. What type of things are you seeing in the horizon? What your plans are for pushing out your business to even bigger scales? Yeah, so obviously the investment offers a tremendous opportunity to scale the business fast. So from a geographical point of view, we're going to expand operations into Japan, Thailand, People may ask why Thailand's one of the predominant insurance markets in Asia and one of the fastest growing still. So uh, many multinational insurers are based there and it's one of our key markets. So therefore, it's right that we have a team uh, in, in that particular country. And then we do have our eyes on the US uh, or North America. Quite simply, it still is the number one B2B insurance market in the world. We've already started getting opportunities in North America. So therefore, it makes sense that we start to have a presence there. So from a geographical point of view, that's going to be where our growth is, as well as continuing to expand operations what we have now in Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, China, and, and, and Manila. But from more uh, kind of a uh, business model point of view, I think we see a couple of evolutions. So right now, we've been more a classic B2B modular tech uh, licensed software provider. What we're seeing the play start to evolve to is many insurers are asking us, can you create platform as a service where you essentially combine various parts of your tech into a platform for a particular distribution channel or a particular product line or a particular new partnership that they may have? Uh, so we're, we're really excited by that play and we're already working with major insurers on that play as well. And then the third part of things is we want to be part of the embedded insurance ecosystem. So we don't want to be a product provider. We don't want to be a distribution arm. We essentially want to be part of the tech infrastructure, which helps connect insurers to new business models, new ecosystems, uh, that helps them essentially kind of get great, gain greater access to obviously uh, kind of uh, distributing their products and their solutions to customers across Asia and beyond. Because the reality is that I think it's about, there's an $83 trillion gap in insurance in Asia. So there's so much opportunity in order to kind of make insurance more accessible. And we feel if we can use our tech to work with our partners, insurers, our different partners like ecosystems, then uh, I think it could be a, a really exciting play for us as a business model. So we, we will morph into that space as various opportunities that we're starting to be excited on. But that'll be the three pillars of the strategy moving forward. John, you're incredible. You're incredible I mean, because you've got so much aligned and you've got such clarity as to where you're going. And you've highlighted a lot of things that are a little bit of a myth in order for you to grow. You don't need to, you don't need to be profitable or you're growing into multiple markets, 11 markets in three years. That's a lot of vision. That's a lot of execution. And for the last nine months, we haven't been able to travel. We've all been confined <laughs> to our space, but yet you are just 
rocking it. Congratulations. Congratulations on your raise. Congratulations with your success. Thank you for being on here. You shared such tremendous value to our listeners, understanding a little bit about what InsureTech is, how your business have been able to grow, how startups have been able to make such an impact. Is there any final words that you wanted to share with us here today? I think uh, the biggest kind of phrase I'm now using to our team is uh, we go again. I think the Series A is now beyond us. Now it's all about continuing to accelerate the business. And I think that's where any entrepreneur knows that. Like the, the cycle never stops. It's about continually evolving, continually accelerating. That We see a, a massive opportunity for us, uh, but we've also got to be aware that others will probably see the opportunity as well. So we've got to continually kind of go in the pace. I think you'll hear me say that again quite week after week to the team that we go again because that's the reality of the stage we're at. But uh, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on, Peter. I uh, really enjoyed the interactions and questions and looking forward to interacting again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Guys, go out there and make it happen. COVID didn't change anything. As a matter of fact, if anything, it's actually propelled John and his team to go out there, go bigger, go faster, be more nimble and pivot to the direction where he can go international. So congratulations, John. Thank you for joining us today. And here we go again. Thank you, John. Fantastic. Thanks, Peter.